So that's what we're asking for, is just have the debate, let the chips fall where they may. Oh, those chips are falling. Falling all over the place. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. I got the feeling that something ain't right. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. Yep. Yes, I'm stuck in the middle. From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA. Up in Oregon on the Central Coast on KYAQ and in Cottage Grove on Queso. In Lancaster, Pennsylvania on WLRI. In Maui, Hawaii on KAKU. In Columbus, Ohio on WGRN, on WLPP in Palinville, New York, in Grand Rapids, Michigan on WPRR, in New Orleans on WHIV, in Gallup, New Mexico on KNIZ, Concord, New Hampshire's WNHN, Fayetteville, Arkansas's KPSQ, Seattle, Washington's KODX, Red Bluff, Redding, California's KFOI, Round Mountain, California's KKRN, and in Minneapolis, St. Paul on AM 950 KTNF. We also stream coast to coast and around the globe every day on the internets for your convenience. On the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, GDPR, Revolution 99, Workforce Rising, and Detour Talk, amongst other fine affiliates. Blanketing planet Earth five days a week. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, all-around swell fellow, says me. From bradblog.com, thank you very much for joining us today for another thrilling broadcast as uh, Nancy Pelosi spends what is now, I believe, her seventh hour. She's now in her seventh hour on the House floor. We'll get to that in a moment. Uh, but... Uh, this tweet from uh, Sahil Kapoor uh, from Bloomberg News says, Deficits, schmefficits. Fresh off a $1.5 trillion tax cut, Congress reaches a deal to raise spending by some $300 billion over the next two years. He adds that post-Jimmy Carter, the U.S. budget deficit has risen under every single Republican president and has fallen under every Democratic president. That trend now appears to clearly be continuing under Donald Trump. Just keep that in mind when uh, your, uh, your friends, your relatives tell you that, uh, oh, Republicans are, are, are deficit hawks. Republicans are conservative when it comes to government spending. They're the fiscally responsible ones. That's what they love to say. It's completely and utterly untrue, and it has been untrue for decades. That was uh, Desi Doyen, by the way. <laughs> Hi, Des. Hi. Uh, in, in fact, uh, Senate lawmakers who reached the agreement... Um, for this new spending bill on Wednesday, uh, well, they agreed in the Senate for on this spending bill so far, but the House, which will also have to vote on the bill, that is a different issue. Either way, it appears that the Senate deal leaves out the issue entirely of what will happen to the Dreamers, whose DACA protections from deportation by the Trump administration 
are set to run out as of March 5, at least in theory. Jess Hansen of the National Immigration Law Center will join us shortly to help figure uh, figure out where the hell we are or aren't on that issue, that still raging battle as millions of immigrants in the U.S. remain threatened today by Donald Trump's policies. But first, some election news, some uh, and in fact, some encouraging news for those hoping for light at the end of our ongoing dark tunnel. Democrats won an ex-urban St. Louis seat in the state of Missouri's House of Representatives on Tuesday, racking up another victory in a district that was also easily carried by Donald Trump in the 2016 election. Voters in Jefferson County appeared to choose Mike Revis, a 27-year-old Democrat, to fill a seat left vacant when the incumbent quit to run for county executive. Revis appears to have defeated Republican David Linton by about four points. Now, that's a pretty good victory in and of itself, but it's even more significant when you compare it to what happened in 2016 when Donald Trump won that district by a 61 to 33 percent margin. Yes, Donald Trump won it by 28 percent. And now the Democrat has taken the seat by 4%. That's a 32-point swing, essentially, since the presidential election in 2016. And four years before that, Mitt Romney had beat uh, 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 President Obama in that district by 55 to 43 uh, uh, points, so by some 12 points. So this is a firmly Republican district, or at least it used to be. Because Mike Revis has now taken that um, uh, that seat in the Missouri State House of Representatives. The St. Louis Post-Dispatch reports that based on the unofficial results, Republicans managed to hold on to three other seats in four special elections across the state on Tuesday. They won decisively in two western Missouri districts and narrowly in the southeast Missouri's uh, 144th state congressional district. In all of the races, however, Democrats made substantial gains over presidential uh, results in those same districts. And in all four, Democrats did far better than they did last time these state house seats were up for election because the Democrats had failed to run anybody against the Republicans in those districts. Last time around, uh, believed previously, I guess, by Democrats to be unwinnable for them. But what do you know? <laughs> if you put someone up. Surprise. Maybe they win. Give voters an alternative and maybe they'll actually choose Just it. Maybe what they a, will. What a concept. Democrats are portraying this uh, unexpected win on Tuesday as still more evidence that the party's voters are fired up. Ahead of November's midterm elections, after a string of special election wins over the course of the last year, Representative-elect Mike Revis's victory tonight will undoubtedly send another shockwave through the GOP as we continue to run the best candidates focused on addressing local issues and improving their neighborhoods. Uh, I'm sorry, their neighbor's quality of life. That, according to Democratic Legislative Campaign Committee head Jessica Post in a statement, on Tuesday night, Revis is the second Democrat this year, meaning uh, that in just the first five weeks of 2018, the second Democrat to win a long-held Republican seat in a state legislative race. 
after Democratic um, uh, candidate Patty Schachner won a uh, state Senate seat in Wisconsin just a few weeks ago, flipping another longtime Republican seat from red to blue just last month. Democrats have now picked up 35 state legislative seats across the country in special elections, while Republicans have picked up just four. That since Trump took office. 35 state legislative seats. And as you'll recall, they also picked up the U.S. Senate seat once held by Trump's Attorney General Jeff Sessions, which uh, Senator Doug Jones won in uh, won in December. So that's what's going on for Democrats so far in 2018. How are things going on the Republican side? Well, you'll recall that that U.S. Senate race I mentioned in December uh, won by Democrats uh, was against the controversial Roy Moore candidate, uh, former Alabama Supreme Court justice who had been accused of sexual misconduct by a number of women, including some who say that he molested them as teenagers. That's who Republicans put up for the U.S. Senate last year. So how are things looking for midterm races beginning to fill out now across the country for Republicans this year? Well, uh, Fonzie actually pointed this one out to me via Twitter over the weekend. Not the real Fonzie. Yes, that Fonzie. Henry Winkler. Seriously? Yeah, well, he tweeted that if this is true, he said, oh, my, my parents escaped from Nazi Germany to live free and taught me this can never happen again. He was citing a tweet from uh, Jeff Yang of CNN uh, who said, uh, and here we are, folks, former head of the American Nazi Party, Arthur Jones, unrepentant white supremacist and Holocaust denier, will be the GOP nominee for the U.S. Uh, House of Representatives for Congress in Illinois' 3rd Congressional District. He said an actual Nazi is now a GOP candidate and party-line GOP voters uh, will vote for him. Arthur Jones, according to the Chicago Sun-Times, an outspoken Holocaust denier, activist, anti-Semite, and white supremacist, is poised to become the Republican nominee for an Illinois congressional seat representing parts of Chicago and nearby suburbs. Jones told the Sun-Times, quote, Well, first of all, I'm running for Congress, not the Chancellor of Germany, all right? To me, the Holocaust is what I said it is. It's an international extortion racket. Indeed, Jones's own website for his latest congressional run, As a Republican includes a section titled The Holocaust Racket, where he calls the genocide carried out by the German Nazi regime and collaborators uh, in other nations to be, quote, the biggest, blackest lie in history. From the 1990s to the to uh, 2016, Jones, a 70 year old retired insurance agent, has jumped into the Illinois Uh, GOP's third congressional district primary seven different times, but he never came close to becoming a viable contender. But that outcome will be different for Jones in the Illinois primary on March 20. To his own amazement, he apparently is the only Republican on the ballot. Wow. The GOP did not bother to put anybody else up. He said, and given the fact that I've got no opposition in the primary, okay, I win that one by default. All right, Jones said during an interview, that leaves Illinois Republicans saddled with a nominee who is well known for racist and white supremacist activities and does not try to hide it 
like so many of them do. He says the parts he's not supposed to say out loud. He says them out loud. Yes, he says, I am, yes, an actual Nazi. Jones told the Sun-Times he's a a former leader of the American Nazi Party. He now heads a group called the America First Committee, which uh, is an organization uh, with membership open to any white American citizen of European non-Jewish descent, he says. Wow. America first. Sound familiar? That is, of course, the longtime slogan used by racists here in the U.S. going back for decades and now, of course, used by Donald Trump in his own policies and his own rallies. The Anti-Defamation League has been uh, keeping uh, tabs on this Jones guy for years In November, he will face either uh, Congressman Dan Lipinski, Democrat from Illinois, or uh, Lipinski's Democratic primary challenger, Marie Newman, in what is a heavily Democratic district that is about to become a great deal more so, I suspect, or maybe at least I hope. Uh, Last spring uh, in Pikeville, Kentucky, Jones spoke to a uh, National Socialist Movement gathering. That would be the neo-Nazis. Uh, He said in his address, according to a video on YouTube, that he was sorry that he voted for Donald Trump, who has, quote, surrounded himself with hordes of Jews, including his Jewish son-in-law, Jared Kushner. Wow. Okay, Illinois voters. Good time to step up. Yeah, you think? Uh, And uh, speaking of uh, stepping up against this uh, this this nativist, this resurgence of nativists, my goodness, in in this country um, on Wednesday, the uh, Senate leaders from both parties, as I mentioned, announced an agreement for a two year, almost four hundred billion dollar budget deal that would provide uh, Pentagon and domestic programs with huge spending increases. Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell announced the pack uh, pact along with. The uh, top Senate Democrat, Chuck Schumer, and said it will contain almost $300 billion in spending over current limits on defense and domestic accounts. The measure is said to also contain some $90 billion in overdue disaster aid and an increase in government uh, in the government borrowing cap, that disaster aid for uh, Texas, Florida, Puerto Rico, etc., Uh, It will also, as I said, increase the government uh, borrowing cap that would prevent a first-ever U.S. government default on its obligations. In other words, it's going to lift the debt debt ceiling as well if this thing passes. They're going to put this into the government uh, funding. Now, that is uh, reasonable and wise. However, you may recall that Tea Party conservatives have virulently objected to raising the debt ceiling over and over again, at least when Obama was the president of the United States, when there was a Democrat in the White House. And the need to lift this debt ceiling now has come uh, much sooner than previously expected due to the GOP tax legislation, which has already lowered incoming revenue to the government needed to pay our bills. But opposition to the Senate deal Uh, was mounting on Wednesday in the U.S. House where so-called conservative Republicans, if we can still call them that, and progressive Democrats are reportedly none too happy with the deal made in the U.S. Senate. House Minority Leader Nancy Pelosi said on Wednesday that she and a large number 
whatever that means, quote, a large number of fellow Democrats will oppose the spending deal to keep the government open unless she is guaranteed a vote on immigration legislation. She's not demanding uh, uh, a fix for DACA. She's just saying, hey, guarantee us a vote here in the House the way you guaranteed, the way Mitch McConnell guaranteed or at least promised uh, a vote on immigration issues over in the U.S. Senate. To uh, underscore her concerns, Pelosi spoke for more than seven hours on the House floor on Wednesday. She is actually still speaking as we go to air. Don't know how long she's going to go, but she has been uh, speaking to demand this guarantee for such a vote in the House from Speaker Paul Ryan. I am hopeful that we can get that commitment. And let me say about this House of Representatives, with the people's house and the wisdom of our founders elected every two years to have us constantly accountable to our constituents. Let's have the debate on the floor. So that's what we're asking for, is just just simply a vote. No guarantee. Have the debate. Let the chips fall uh, where they may. So her voice was uh, beginning to give out a little bit there. I think, Desi, you said that was in our fifth hour. Hour five. Yeah. According to the House historian, um, while lengthy speeches, you know, sort of filibusters are are more common, of course, in the U.S. Senate, Pelosi's speech is now the longest on the record uh, on the House floor by far. I think uh, previously, so seven hours as of now, previously the record was held by John Boehner uh, back in, I want to say, 2010 when he spoke for a little bit more than one hour. And do you know what he was uh, uh, trying to highlight at the time? I don't recall. He was trying to block uh, the cap and trade bill in the yeah. uh, in the House, which was passed at the time by Democrats. Boehner was in the mi- minority at the time. He became House Speaker, uh, but he Eventually. was in the minority at the time. It was passed in the uh, U.S. Senate. In the House. I'm sorry, in the House, but then it was blocked. In the Senate. In the Senate. Uh, by, by Democrats. Democrats, yeah. Because they didn't want to lose. They were worried about having that debate and letting those chips fall where they may. So uh, Pelosi's speech now, longest on the record in the, in the, in the House floor, uh, where she was able to, usually in the House, debate is greatly limited. But Pelosi exploited a bit of a loophole here that allows for party leaders to speak as long as they like. And uh, she has been sharing uh, statements from DACA recipients, Sharing some, oh yeah, some very heartbreaking stories that she's sharing. Not just heartbreaking, but also uplifting and inspiring of these DACA kids who were brought by their parents into this country. And how they have made great strides in their lives and are contributing to the economy and really are the kinds of people that we would like to have as American citizens. I'm glad to see her highlighting that. Uh, Whether that will satisfy, uh, you know, many uh, progressives, uh, Democrats, immigration advocates who were very angry a couple of weeks ago when Democrats caved in their demand for uh, for DACA legislation, uh, along with that short-term government uh, spending bill, whether that is going to satisfy uh, those folks, well, that remains to be seen. Uh, it's unlikely that Democrats on their own will be able to stop this uh, bill if it passes in the Senate uh, f- from uh, being able to keep it from uh, uh, passing in the U.S. House. But if a whole bunch of Democrats 
say no, along with a number of these uh, Tea Party, what do they call them? Freedom Caucus now. <laughs> uh, Freedom Caucus Republicans then this thing may not pass in the House. We don't know. Uh, The current Senate deal comes without a fix for DREAMers, those thousands, hundreds of thousands of immigrant children who came to the country years ago with their parents. Uh, It's not clear as of this hour how many of those Democrats are going to follow Pelosi's lead, but her actions on Wednesday now have raised new uncertainty because we need that uh, new uncertainty about whether congressional leaders uh, will be able to finalize a deal as planned. But it has served to highlight the ongoing anxiety and turmoil for millions in this country right now, living every day with constant uncertainty over their fate. You know, you always hear from Republicans about, oh, uh, we need uh, we need a tax cut because uh, Americans and American businesses, uh, you know, need to have certainty about their future so they can plan. Well, imagine what it's like right now to be one of these dreamers in this country. Jess Hansen of the National Immigration Law Center joins us next to discuss where we may or may not be going from here and if the law will even allow the, the mass deportation that uh, could begin as early as March 5, unless there is some sort of fix to DACA. I'm Brad Friedman. This is your Bradcast. Hi, this is Desi Doyen from the Green News Report and the Bradcast, both brought to you without corporate or political influence, because we rely on you to help keep us completely independent. Please drop by bradblog.com slash donate today and help us stay on your public airwaves. That's bradblog.com slash donate. You'll thank yourself later. I'll thank you now. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. It looks like Senate Democrats and Republicans have made a deal for a spending bill to keep the government open after its Thursday night, Friday morning deadline for running out of money. And they are set to increase both military and domestic spending by uh, somewhere between three and four hundred billion dollars, because, as you know, deficit spending doesn't actually matter to Republicans when they are running the government. That increase comes on top of the one and a half trillion dollars that they voted to add to the national debt with their recent tax cut bill. But despite the Democrats willingness to shut down the government uh, about three weeks ago due to the GOP and Trump White House unwillingness to strike a deal to protect hundreds of thousands of so-called dreamers who were previously protected from deportation under the Obama-era DACA program, the latest agreement in the Senate to avoid another government shutdown appears to include no agreement at all on immigration issues. That, despite a Trump-imposed March 5 deadline after which the administration could begin mass deportations of the dreamers if legislation is not passed to fix the DACA issue. That is a problem that Trump created on his own when he reversed Obama's program last September and lifted protections for some 800,000 children of immigrants who came here illegally 
many of them decades ago. Adding to the quagmire are the many new anti-immigration demands that the Trump White House has now added to their negotiation offers. Some might say bad faith negotiation offers in exchange for new DACA protections and complicating the matter still further or at least adding another layer of uncertainty and confusion to the entire issue is the fact that a federal court in California has found Trump's reversal of Obama's DACA program to have been done unlawfully, meaning the March 5 date is either a deadline or it isn't. Trump's anti-immigrant uh, chief of staff, John Kelly, told reporters on Tuesday that DACA recipients are, quote, not a priority for deportation if Congress allows their protections to expire before March 5. But as Alice Holstein at TPM noted, that is cold comfort for dreamers like Juan Escalante, who works for the immigration advocacy group America's Voice. He told uh, TPM that it's a black hole in the calendar. People will lose their jobs, lose their privileges to drive as of March 5. One of the main things I'm wrestling with, he says, is the psychological effect that this is having. Everyone is fearful. I can't plan for my future. For people to be under that stress, it really does break you down emotionally. I, I can only imagine, I, with the stress that all of us are going through right now, thanks to this administration, I, I can't even imagine what those facing the threat of imminent deportation to some country that many of them have never known at all after coming here as children with their parents and living here their whole lives, I can't even imagine what they must be going through each day now. Escalante says that ICE has a database of every single person in the DACA program, where we live, our fingerprints. It's way more information than they have on the average undocumented immigrant, he said. So on March 6, if I go to the media and speak out in defense of myself, are they going to come after me? Escalante pointed to the case of Daniela Vargas. Uh, who we uh, spoke about on this show some weeks ago. She's a DACA recipient who came to the U.S. at the age of 11, who was arrested and uh, turned over to Homeland Security after daring to speak out at a press conference criticizing the Trump administration's immigration policies. That young woman in Mississippi spoke out against her father and brother being detained, and ICE came back to retaliate against her, Escalante says. They tried to deport her. They took her into custody. And if it hadn't been for the outcry from the community, she would have been deported, even though she was eligible for a DACA renewal. So he says it's all fine and dandy for General Kelly, Trump's chief of staff, to say we're not a priority. But the evidence points to this being where we are headed. GOP Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell has promised there would be a vote on these issues in the U.S. Senate if they were not resolved before a new government spending bill was passed. That debate and vote is now said to be scheduled for next week in the U.S. Senate. But even if McConnell keeps his word, which is never guaranteed, there is also no guarantee that a bill can even pass the Senate, even if they do have a debate. And no guarantee it can even pass the more radical far-right House of Representatives or even be signed by this president who has now added demands not only for money 
for his southern border wall to uh, to his deal offer, which you'll remember, Mexico, not the U.S. taxpayer, was supposed to pay for that wall. But he's also added radical new restrictions on legal immigration as well to those demands. So where does all of this leave us? And in particular, where does it leave the hundreds of thousands now facing imminent deportation as soon as March 5? Joining us to try and figure that out is Jess Hansen. She's an immigration law attorney and Skadden and Skadden fellow with the National Immigration Law Center here in Los Angeles. The NILC's mission, according to their website, is to defend and advance the rights and opportunities of low-income immigrants and their family members. Jess Hansen, welcome back to the broadcast. Thanks for having me back. Sure. Uh, you're, since now, since you're an immigration attorney, Jess, let's start with the legal issues here. There. There seems to be a lot of uncertainty about whether DACA was lawfully reversed at all by Donald Trump. A a federal judge some weeks ago ordered that the administration must continue to take new DACA registrations. Uh, The law was at least partially blocked by that judge. Does that mean the Trump administration is now barred from deporting Dreamers as of March 5, as you understand it? Well, in that case, on January 9th, as you mentioned, the judge in the Northern District of California case, of Mm -hmm. which there are several cases challenging the the termination of the DACA program, Milk is litigating one of those cases Mm -hmm. in New York. Um, But in the California case, the judge there issued what is called a preliminary injunction, basically a temporary block on the Trump administration from ending the DACA program. But as you mentioned, it's not a complete block. It only allows certain parts of the program to go forward. Mm -hmm. So, for example, as of right now, the Trump administration is um, mandated to allow individuals who have had DACA previously to renew their DACA grant. Um, So people who may have already expired, uh, but they they did have DACA in the past, Mm -hmm. are able to renew now. And the agency that accepts those applications, which is USCIS, is currently processing those applications. So for a lot of people who were already part of the DACA program, this is a temporary reprieve. If they're able to get in their renewal applications as soon as possible and have those processed, they could potentially get an additional two years of work permit and DACA grant um, under this current order. Uh However, that order has been appealed um, both to the Ninth Circuit and also the government took the unusual step of seeking to skip review of the Ninth Circuit and instead appealed directly to the Supreme Court Mm. through a a very rare legal mechanism called cert before judgment. Mm -hmm. Um, So the government filed its request uh, with the Supreme Court on January 18th. Both sides have already briefed the Supreme Court, and we are expecting the Supreme Court to announce whether it is going to hear that case or not on February 16th. So we're still waiting to see what happens with that. But meanwhile, the government has not asked, um, excuse me, the plaintiffs in that case have mm-hmm. not asked that the the program be um, blocked while this is happening. So that means that while the appeal is happening, people can still apply to renew. And so we're, we are recommending that folks who have had DACA in the past, even if it had expired, to go ahead and renew. Um, we have a lot of information and resources on our website, mm-hmm. org, um, to help people figure that out, uh, because under the previous iteration of this, um, there were a lot of people who maybe had one tiny mistake in their application, and their entire application was rejected for that reason. Mm. So um, 
instead of just rushing to the mailbox, uh, we do have some, some tips for folks to make sure that they're, you know, crossing all their T's and dotting all their I's before sending that out. But um, to, answer, so to answer your question, as of right now, folks can apply to renew, but that order in the California case does not apply to people who have never before had DACA. Mm. So, for example, if someone since the, the program was terminated mm-hmm. has now aged in, has now become old enough to apply, mm-hmm. um, so they've been there their whole life and they just turned 15, they cannot apply for the first time because the order doesn't cover them. So in our case in New York, uh, which is Bataya Vidal versus Nielsen, we also had recently had oral argument on our similar request to our judge for a preliminary injunction, but our request is broader. We would like for the judge in our case to order the government to also accept initial applications. And so we are just waiting to hear from our judge in that case. He has not ruled on it yet. And there are several other cases moving forward as well. So we just have to keep monitoring um, whether, you know, more folks might be able to apply during this time while we wait for Congress. So if if nothing happens, uh, if nothing changes in Congress, if nothing changes uh, in the courts for the moment, that would mean that those people who do apply for renewal, if they're accepted, they'll be protected in theory for the next two years. But those who... Uh, never applied in the first place, or as uh, Trump's chief of staff, John Kelly, said, who were, uh, quote, too lazy to get off their asses. Those people, uh, well, I was going to say as of March 5, but I guess as of right now, they are eligible for immediate deportation by this administration. Do I understand that correctly? That's correct. And um, to respond to your comment about General Kelly's remarks, those remarks reflect an ongoing deep white nativist uh, sentiment Mm -hmm. with this administration that has shown itself over and over and over again. Um, And it's just entirely inappropriate uh, that 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 narrative is being inserted into this really urgent situation where we we really need a fix from Congress. Because as you mentioned, this, um, the temporary relief that we're, we're achieving through the courts is temporary and as you mentioned it doesn't cover everyone who is eligible for daca and so we really need congress to pass a narrow bipartisan bill that only focuses on relief for dreamers and doesn't include all the other more extremist uh immigration policies that that the trump administration including general kelly are are advocating for and i want to talk about some of those in a second but since we got to kelly here uh as i noted at the top kelly also said that while DACA recipients are, quote, not a priority for deportation if Congress fails to act. He says that he he doubts very much that Trump would extend the program if a deal is not struck before March 5, adding that he's, uh, quote, not so sure this president has the authority to extend it. Does the president have the authority to extend it if he wants to? That is actually a more complicated question than it would first appear. Uh, we have advocates have always argued that the president did have the authority to to create the DACA program, um, but Trump, the Trump administration, and the government in the litigation has taken the position that it was never lawful for the government to to start this program in the first place. Mm-hmm. We don't agree with that, um, obviously, and we're challenging that, but the the position that government has taken in litigation is that they couldn't. So, you know, in the litigation, we have pointed to Trump's consistent um, 
changing of, of his narrative of whether he can or cannot continue a program like this mm-hmm. to point out that we, we truly believe and we hope to prove through, our, through these lawsuits that the motivation for ending the DACA program had, was based on um, improvident factors. It was not based on facts. It was not based on a p- needs for policy or changed circumstances. It was entirely based on animus toward immigrants, um, toward Mexicans in particular, and um, Trump's consistent changing really um, sheds light on that. Is is that the basis on which the judge out here in California actually uh, blocked at least parts of uh, Trump's executive order that uh, it was based on animus, there was no actual need for it, uh, or was it, or was it something else out in California that uh, led the the judge to that finding? The ruling in the in the California case, while the plaintiffs in that case did bring an equal protection animus claim, mm-hmm. the actual uh, preliminary injunction was based on the Administrative Procedure Act um, and finding that, based on a preliminary finding, again, this is temporary until the judge has a, a chance to, to hear the merits of the entire case, mm-hmm. but the preliminary injunction is based on a finding that um, the plaintiffs are likely to succeed in showing that the decision to end DACA was arbitrary and capricious. So that's it's different than animus, but it's related in that it was we are arguing similarly that it was entirely arbitrary. There was no there was no rational reason for this action to take place. Doesn't the government, uh, the, the the president of the United States, have pretty much the uh, the right to do anything he wants, uh, essentially, when it comes to immigration law? At least that's the argument that the, the Republicans have made, and to some extent, it's it's sort of backed up by the actions that Barack Obama took in implementing DACA in the first place. Um, does that right not exist, uh, going both ways for presidents? It exists both ways if certain procedures are followed, mm-hmm. and we, and the the reasoning behind those actions has to have some basis in in fact or policy. Um, so, first of all, when President Obama implemented the DACA program, he decided based on a lot of research, a lengthy memos, a lot of statistical evidence that the individuals who would be benefiting from this program have lived in the United States most of their lives. Mm-hmm. Um, and would be screened appropriately to ensure that they um, merited or, you know, in some cases didn't merit a favorable exercise of prosecutorial discretion, um, Mm -hmm. and that is DACA. And so by Trump, by unilaterally reversing all of those findings, Mm -hmm. all of those statistics without any reason, Mm -hmm. any new facts at all, it's it is arbitrary and capricious for him to do that and a president even a president is not above the law if there needs to be some sort of art some sort of rational reason for a presidential action especially when it is blanket affecting you know hundreds of thousands of individuals it needs to be measured and it needs to have um, it needs to be supported by facts since the uh, Democrats appear to have blinked uh, a few weeks ago uh, during the uh, the initial government uh, shutdown when they had uh, 
uh, promised that they would not agree to funding the government unless there was a deal on DACA. Uh, Since then, Trump has now seemingly moved the goalposts on what he had originally called for, uh, which was a clean DACA bill in exchange for some new border security funding. Now he's added not only a demand for $25 billion for a border wall, he also wants to uh, he wants restrictions on on legal immigration, on the visa lottery program and on the family reunification program, which he and many Republicans refer to derisively as chain migration. Can you explain what those two programs are, the visa lottery and uh, chain migration and, and, and how they're both being misrepresented by Trump. He said during his State of the Union address last week that the visa lottery essentially allows anyone from anywhere in the world to come into into the country without respect to their skills or without background checks. He said that the so-called chain migration allows an unlimited number of family members to be brought over uh, essentially by anyone who is given a green card. Can you uh, respond to those two points, Jess Hansen? Sure. Uh, First of all, the diversity lottery is a visa program that is meant to encourage individuals from underrepresented countries to migrate to the U.S. Um, It is completely random, although folks who are eligible to be in the lottery are screened intensively before they can, you know, come into the U.S. on that. And that, that usually, typically, folks that come in on the diversity lottery are from the continent of Africa, for example, where there are not as many immigrants from Africa as there are, for example, from Central America, Mm -hmm. South America. And so the diversity lottery truly is what it says. It helps to diversify the group of immigrants that are coming into the U.S. And and just to underscore Um, what you said, there is uh, an extensive background check on those uh, people. It's not like, and and many of them, I understand, wait like a decade uh, or so to... To get in on that. So it's not it is not as uh, Trump is surprise, surprise. It is not as uh, Trump has been representing it, that program. That's correct. And the, the president has been completely misrepresenting these programs. Um, again, this is there is very strong racial undertones to everything he's saying about these programs, because the, the things he's trying to portray are he's stoking nativist fears. He's not He's not explaining facts in these cases. And so to move on to so-called chain migration, mm-hmm. which we prefer to call family reunification, first of all, it is not true that um, anyone can basically petition for any family member to come in. There are strict rules on which family members a person can ask for, depending on how old that person is and whether that person is single or married. Um, and as you mentioned earlier, it takes years. It takes up to 20, 25 years mm. for someone to be except like in the right place in line mm-hmm. to even be eligible for a visa through that program after intensive screening. And so this these programs are already not doing enough to help families be reunified and to diversify immigrants that we, we are having in the United States. And yet Trump wants to end them because he's completely misrepresenting um, what they're doing. And as I mentioned before, these are um, nativist policies that Trump is trying to make America white again, basically. Mm. Uh, that's that's what is going on here. And um, it's a really lopsided, um, very lopsided plan, the, the so-called four-point plan of this administration, because one of the points is a fix for DACA, but all three of the other points are just really anti-immigrant um, with a lot of racist undertones, and, and we definitely do not support those policies. It also it also seems ill-considered, because the, the, the fact is, 
uh, as I understand it, we need immigration. We need immigrants. We need to actually increase the population as uh, the baby boomers are uh, retiring and so forth. Someone needs to be able to pay their bills uh, for you know Social Security, Medicare, and so forth. And uh, to that end, we need to increase the population, and that's where immigration comes in. And when we cut off immigration like this, um, it, it seems like we're severely hurting ourselves just on a numbers basis, uh, you know, d- down the line. Uh, but Jess, I want to ask you, uh, I, I know you're not a, um, a politician, you're an attorney, but that means you also know how negotiations work. Did the Democrats, uh, did they blow it by backing down from their insistence that a, a DACA bill must be passed before they agreed to funding the government uh, a couple of weeks ago during that shutdown? Uh, you know how negotiations work. Did they give away their leverage by indicating that, oh, they're, they were just largely bluffing, as you see it? It's really hard to say. Um, we're definitely going to have to wait for next week to see if Senator McConnell um, stays true to his word, because if he does, then the, you know, the compromise that was made will hopefully come to fruition. Um, but that's we're still in kind of a wait-and-see mode. It is inexcusable uh, that the Senate leadership has agreed to put immigrant use aside in the current uh, deal that they have reached, um, and we'll have to see what happens with that as well. Um, it still has to go through the House, and so if if um, congressmen and women in the House decide not to support that bill unless it does include protections for DREAMers, that could be another route, uh, but it's, it's really difficult to say. We're just going to have to keep stressing that we really need a narrow fix for DACA recipients that does not include these other anti-immigrant proposals. I got uh, just a, another couple of minutes here, but I want to ask you two points. Uh, one about the parents of these DACA kids. Obama had tried to offer some sort of protection for them as well, but he was blocked, as I understand it, by uh, by the courts. Have any of the conversations that, that you've heard about an immigration deal uh, or what may or may not come up for a vote in the uh, in the Senate next week. Have any of those conversations included talk about protection from deportation for the parents of the Dreamers? Uh, you know, in in the event that uh, these DACA kids are uh, allowed to stay, the deportation is put off. What what of their parents that brought him uh, brought them here? Any conversation you have heard about that in any of these negotiations? Unfortunately, not. That is not part of the conversation right now, and um, that shines a light on it on an even bigger problem. Is what about the 12 million undocumented immigrants that already live in this country and are part of our communities? Um, there are coworkers. There are doctors. There. You know they're in every aspect of our communities, and the the policy proposals, other than a fix for DACA, the policy proposals that the Trump administration has put forward, do nothing to address the issues of folks who are already living here and who, the majority of whom who have lived in the United States for many many years, um, and really have established their lives here. Their roots are here. Their kids are here. Um, they're a part of the United States, as you said earlier. Immigrants are. A integral part of this country and um, the current, uh, I guess, grandstanding that's happening in Congress is really doing nothing to address the plight of, of those individuals, including parents of DACA recipients. Um, and so that's another battle we, we, we have to keep fighting um, because we those um, individuals are, are still not um, being discussed in earnest. In recent days, we've reported on some of the 
terrible stories of uh, of ICE uh, essentially scooping up, detaining, deporting folks who were told that they could remain here, who haven't committed crimes, uh, some not even being allowed to say goodbye to their families before they were uh, detained, families being torn apart. Uh, are the stories that are, you know, of, of the detentions and the deportations that are going on right now, even as we speak, are those adequately being reported by the corporate media who is often uh, tied up into the politics, into the politics of Trump and, and uh, congressional politics and everything else? Are those stories adequately being told as you see it by the corporate media or are they uh, is the mainstream uh, media falling down on the job? I do think the mainstream media could do a lot more to lift up these stories uh, because a lot of people don't realize it's happening. Um, if you're not, if you don't know someone who knows someone who went through that, or if you're not paying really close attention to your local news or, or however that information is being communicated, a lot of people have no idea that this is going on, and and the, the people who don't know that it's going on might be the the biggest uh, voices um, in opposing it. And as we've seen in the past, ICE and CBP, the two immigration enforcement agencies, are very sensitive to critical media feedback. And so, for example, in Danny Vargas's case, she's actually Nilk's client. Mm-hmm. Um, part of why the the government released her was because there was so much outcry over the fact that she was arrested. And so I do think it's important when these arrests are happening, which they are, unfortunately, and especially in retaliation uh, for people speaking out um, or, you know, taking other public stances. Um, I think the public and the media really does need to step up and, and really, really denounce these types of um, arrests and detentions in order for ICE to um, stop doing it. Jess Hansen, uh, attorney at the National Immigration Law Center, or NILC. You can uh, find their work at nilc.org, on the Twitters at nilc underscore org, and you can find uh, Jess herself, if you like, on the Twitters at Jess H-N-S-N. Jess Hansen, always great uh, and incredibly informative talking to you. Uh, I suspect we'll uh, be doing it again in the days ahead as this as this mess, mess continues. Thanks for joining us today, Jess. Thanks for having me. You bet. Okay, a quick break, and we are back with... Um, oh, Desi Doyen, you'll like this story. Oh, good. Uh, it has it, no Green News report coming up after this, but a little bit of science. Science and elections. I do like that. Stand by for that. I'm Brad Friedman. This is the Bradcast. <laughs> Hey, this is Brad. Do you enjoy your non-corporatized, commercial-free Bradcast? Yeah, me too. But we need your help to stay that way. Please consider supporting the investigative blogging, broadcasting, and muckraking that we do here on the Bradcast and the Green News Report and bradblog.com with a donation. It's easy. Stop by bradblog.com donate and drop a few dollars in the tip jar. You can make a one-time contribution or an automatic monthly donation of any amount you like. It's easy. It'll take you about 60 seconds, and you'll help me and Desi stay on the air to continue our troublemaking and muckraking without the corporate influence of anyone. Got it? Thanks. Stop by bradblog.com donate to help us out today. Science. 
Yes, welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com, where usually Desi Doyen is blinding us with science. <laughs> Uh, but no, I'll I'll uh, do the honors here in a moment. Uh, I, I just want to say uh, over the break, got word that uh, uh, Nancy Pelosi has ended her talkathon in the U.S. House after more than eight hours of trying to bring attention to the plight of the Dreamers, as the um, uh, over in the Senate, as Chuck Schumer and Mitch McConnell believe they have a deal that will dramatically raise spending both for military and domestic issues by some $300 billion. That has ticked off so-called conservative Republicans, and uh, they are uh, joining the uh, progressive Democrats in the U.S. House who are ticked off that the bill says nothing at all to uh, about dreamers to protect them. So we will see what happens the Senate is uh, poised to pass this thing, I think, on uh, on Thursday. Then they send it back to the U.S. House. We'll see if it can pass or if we are headed towards another um, government shutdown at uh, midnight on Thursday. But before we get there, uh, more than 60 researchers and technologists are running for federal office in 2018 as part of a historic wave of candidates with science backgrounds who are launching campaigns. At least 200 candidates, 200 with previous careers in science, technology, engineering and math announced bids for some of the nation's roughly 7,000 state legislative seats as of January 31, 200 of them. Wow. That, according to data that uh, 314 Action, a uh, political action committee, shared with Huffington Post, the group which launched in 2014 to help scientists run for office, said it is talking with 500 more people and is pressing about half of them to run. An additional 200 such candidates are running for school boards. Oh, good. Right. Yeah, that's very important. Yeah, I agree. I mean, not only because locally they set the standards and they choose the textbooks, especially at the state level, they mm -hmm. choose the textbooks. But these people set all kinds of policies that affect students directly in every school in every school in America. 314, 314 Action founder Shaughnessy Naughton told the Huffington Post that the number is really astonishing. We've never seen anything like this, he says. It, this is the largest number of scientists to run for public office in modern history. And it should be noted here that if any of them win uh, in, in their runs for Congress, that it would dramatically multiply the number of scientists in Congress beyond the current. Do you know how many scientists there are currently? I know it's not very many. No, it is not. It is one. <laughs> Well, there you go. Congressman Bill Foster of Illinois, Democrat from Illinois. He's the lone Ph.D. scientist in uh, in Congress. He's a physicist. The surge in congressional bids, of course, comes as scientists are expecting a fierce political backlash against Donald Trump, who uh, has yet to name a science advisor. He's been in there for, what, more than a year now. Hasn't named a science advisor because he knows all the science he needs to. He gets his science advisor is Fox News. And, of course, he has proposed dramatically slashing research budgets across federal agencies. He openly mocks the uh, widely accepted science behind global warming. 
uh, under he, he appointed Scott Pruitt, the EPA administrator who has reversed regulations to reduce greenhouse gases, put new rules in place to give control of agencies, science advisory boards to researchers who are paid by the industry instead. The so-called war on science is being waged in Congress as well, under not just in the White House, under the leadership of uh, Congressman Lamar Smith of Texas. He's leaving, isn't he? Isn't He's he retiring, stepping down? Yes, yeah, good. finally. Good riddance. See you later, Lamar. Uh, under his uh, leadership in the House Science Committee, uh, he's a climate change denier. He's a fossil fuel ally. Um, he has uh, mounted repeated witch hunts to actually attack scientists themselves. Yeah, to investigate them. Leading some to call it the House Anti-Science Panel. The attacks on science, of course, did not start with the Trump administration, not in notes, but it has been a catalyst to getting scientists out of the lab and into running for federal office. He says that is one bright spot. Oh, that's a hugely bright spot. And this comes at the expense of their careers as a scientist, you know, publish or perish. They actually need to continuously publish research. This is taking them out of that in order to step up to protect science for the rest of us. Publish, perish, or run for office. I like Which it. is what they seem to be doing. Uh, one of them, a, a number of the uh, uh, the folks who have been endorsed by 314 Action uh, include uh, uh, someone by the name of Sunil Gupta, a systems architect and former executive um, at Mozilla and Groupon. He's running for Michigan's 11th uh, district seat uh, to replace Congressman David Trott, the Republican attorney nicknamed the foreclosure king because he used to own one of the state's largest foreclosure mill mm. uh, law firms. Trott, who is another one of these guys who is not running for election again, he has a 4% lifetime League of Conversation Converse- Conservation, conservation voters <laughs> score. And this uh, huge bunch of Republicans who are running to succeed him don't seem to be improving on that. At a, re- a recent Republican debate held last month, all six of those candidates answered no when they were asked 55 minutes into the debate if they believed in, quote, man-made climate change. They all said no. So let's put a scientist in instead, shall we, Michigan? We'll uh, hopefully cover more on that story as the year progresses, but these primaries are coming up right now, in just weeks from now. So pay attention. All right, my thanks to our producer, Desi Doyen, to my guest today, Jess Hansen of the National Immigration Law Center, and to all of you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. It is, as ever, appreciated. If you missed any portion of today's show, download it anytime for free at bradblog.com. But please do consider, while you're there, stopping by bradblog.com slash donate. My thanks to those of you who have done so. You help keep us on your public airwaves and on your podcasts and everywhere else at bradblog.com slash donate. We rely on you. Thank you in advance. You can drop me an email. I'm bradcast at bradblog.com. And on the Facebooks and the Twitters, I am simply the Brad Blog. That is it. Until we meet again, I'm Brad Friedman. You're not. Good luck, world. <laughs> <laughs>